chapter two of Esther. Let me tell you a story from, uh, I told a couple of stories from back in the UK last time. I'm going to tell you another one here. Uh, it's just because, look, I grew up there. So most of the things I remember, you know, happened back there. I, I am building up a repertoire of illustrations from living here. You'll see, you'll see some of those soon. Look, I was living, we were living in Kent, uh, and I was uh, in between church. I'd finished my church and uh, was in the process of being called to another one. And so I thought it'd be a good idea to go back to Civvy Street. You know, it, it, think about being a minister sometimes. You, you're out of reality, stuck away in your office most of the day, or, you know, whatever else we do, you know, play golf and, you know, get to the pictures, kidding. Uh, you know, and so I thought it'd be good for me to go and remember and recall what life is like in the real world. So I got myself a job, a seven to five job working in a factory, you know, just doing the most tedious thing you can imagine for 10 hours a day on people on minimum wage. And it was revelatory, my experience there. You know, so I'd be working away at my little station and someone would start that morning. You know, at the end of the day, you know, the bosses would say to him, see you, mate, don't come back. Really, by the end of the day, it was just bizarre. The, 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 the changeover, you know, just because his face didn't fit or, or, or you know, he, he just wasn't good enough or didn't meet the standards that they had in just a day. I think the one that really sticks in my mind is I remember we started at 7 o'clock. This guy comes in, I think, around 8, and he happened to work near me. Uh, morning break was 10 a.m., and that was it. That sent him packing after two hours of work. I was like, what's going on here? Uh, and, and, the, and the shop floor manager says, well, did you see the way he held the hammer? Huh? <laughs> that was it. Just because he couldn't hold the tool properly. And so... Look, that's the kind of world it is out there. And the question we're asking is, is that what God's like? In God's economy of things, is it a case of you get it wrong once, pick up the hammer the wrong way round? Mind you, I think I'd sack somebody if they picked up the hammer the wrong way round, Brenton. Uh, uh, and does it just fire us at the first time we show some incompetence? What's he like? as a manager of employees or subjects of a kingdom. It's what we're looking at together. It's Esther 2. Our heading is this. The God who is bigger than me and my circumstances. The God who's bigger than me and my circumstances. Chapter 1 begins, as people revealed to us, chapter 2 begins... Later then, when King Xerxes' his fury has subsided, he remembered Queen Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed to her. It's some time on now. Okay? The king is beginning to, I suppose, in his soberness, realise the gravity. He's banished, you know, his queen. And it's a one-way ticket. He couldn't get it back. You know, you know, this was it. This was final. And so things are beginning to sink in. It's in fact, by now in the text, it's four years on. And by now the king has had time to realize what it's like without Vashti being around. He's had his military campaign against Greece. Have you seen the film 300? Anyone seen the film 300? It's a bit bloody. Okay, It's based on the battle 
that Xerxes had with the Greeks. He lost that. He mustered together the biggest army in the history of the world to, that, to date, took on the Greeks, and lost. You can imagine all the, all, everything that was involved in that, the wealth. And you can imagine what that did to him and to his self-esteem. And so here he is reflecting on the fact, the fact he's lost his queen, the, his losses. Does anybody know? I mean, I ought to have said, you know, there's adult themes throughout this morning. Does anybody know how he consoled himself over these years and particularly over the loss with the Greeks? Yeah, there certainly was a lot of that, Bron, with how he dealt with his subjects. And there was a little bit more, and this is what I said, it's of the adult nature. Does anybody know how he consoled himself? Mm, Yes, here's what the historian Herodotus tells us. The Xerxes consoled himself in endlessly taking advantage of women. That's what he did. And that, that really is an introduction to what's going to happen in this chapter. Look, for verse 2, the king, someone says to the king, look, look, let's make a search. It's like he hasn't got enough women, it seems. Let's make a search and let's find more beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring these beautiful young women into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Does anybody know what a harem effectively is. It's a place of luxury. The king looks after you in there. What is it effectively? It's, it's imprisonment. You, you never leave. What is it? I mean, begins with B. It's a brothel. Look, you, you can't get away from it. Whatever, however else you want to dress it up, it's a personal, privatized, luxurious brothel. Full of women, the king's concubines, the ones he slept with. And now they want to add to it all these young, no, no, there are many of them teenagers, young, beautiful virgins. They want to add them to it so the king can, look, bring them into the, into the harem of the citadel. And so they tell the king, okay. And verse 4, when the king heard about this, because he's told that they can replace Queen Vashti, the advice appealed to the king and he followed it. He's hardly going to say no, is he? And you think so, wouldn't you, after all the abuses going on? But the king takes this on. We're told in verse 5 that at this juncture, we're introduced now to some of the lead characters of, our, of, of, of the book of Esther. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa, okay, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Remember the name, it'll be very important later. Okay, he was carried into exile. It's why he's there. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. Okay, that he raised. She was also called Esther. Both Mordecai and Esther probably had, well, Esther did, had their original Hebrew names. Hadassah is, 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 is uh, Esther's. But then now they've got these foreign names that are assigned to them. They're exiles living in Persia. Okay, they were conscientious Jews who, who, who obviously kept their distances from, from Persian things. Here's Mordecai, he's brought up this young girl, he's his cousin. Normally, in that culture, you can marry your cousin. 
So there's obviously a significant age difference between these two cousins. He hasn't married her, despite the fact that she's beautiful. It, it also perhaps tells us something about his character, Mordecai, that he, he, he would rather take care of her than do this to her. We're told, look, someone's, how someone's introduced on stage is very important. How's, how's Esther introduced here? She's also known as Esther. What's said about her next in verse 7? It's really important to the story here. She was beautiful and had a lovely figure. She was very appealing to men, is the point. She's a very appealing to men. You can see where this is going to go, can't you? Verse 8, and the king's when the king's order and edict were proclaimed, many young women were brought into the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and trusted to Haggai, who were charge of the harem or the brothel, however you want to refer to it. So into this mix-up of the king's personal brothel is brought amongst many young girls, beautiful girls, Okay, it seems one of the most beautiful women of the empire. She just happened to be this Jew, Esther. She's brought in, she's placed in this harem. For whatever reasons, we have to, we're convinced of it, God is involved here. And so somehow she finds favour with the attendant of the harem who puts her, who somehow takes pity on this girl. Pity or a liking, a warmth. Who knows? And wants to shield her from some of the exposure. What do you think these women talk about? Yeah? Okay? What do you think they talk about? And so he obviously wants to try and protect her from some of this. Gives her a special designated place. Shows her some favour. Now, Mordecai, look, verse 10. Esther had not yet revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. We don't know why. Anti-Semitism, possibly? You would have thought so? Maybe because Mordecai thought if they knew she was a Jew, she may not progress in this competition. Remember, it's a competition. What's the competition about? What's this competition of the women? We're going to get to it. To be queen. To be queen. And so... For whatever reason, I think this is the first clue that something is amiss. Here's these two people of faith who are doing everything they can to hide their faith. That's the first clue to something that's going on here. Before a woman, verse 12, a woman's turn came up to go into King Xerxes. She had to complete 12 months of beauty treatment prescribed for the women. Six months of this and six months of that. And so here's these women. They're going to go in to see the king for one evening. This isn't a dinner date. This is to spend an evening in the king's bedroom. And the king, it seems, is so fussy. That, you know, we're doing the 14-day quarantine now if you travel from abroad, you know, or whatever. 14 days. You think 14 days will be a lot of days for a lady to get herself together, wouldn't you? Now, how long does he want? 
And he is worth for preparation. Just so they can abuse these girls. And so they take this year out of their lives in this place. And here's one reality. We've already said this and someone said that this is an imprisonment. When will they leave this harem? I think we've hinted at it already. Yes, thank you, Morag. They will never leave the harem. They're going to spend this entire year preparing to sleep with the king for one evening in the hope that they'll be the king's favourite and be made the queen. Because if they're not, they'll be relegated back to the harem. Perhaps never to see the king again. Remember, he has hundreds of women in there. And to live the rest of their lives. There's one upside, if you can call it an upside, is that they were looked after well, in luxury. Every need was taken care of. But they would never leave. And so finally, Esther's turn comes up to go into the king's private quarter. Verse 14, in the evening she would go and in the morning return to another part of the citadel. So uh, give an example of, of how the thing happens there. The king would use them and chuck them, it seems. Verse 15, when, when the turn came for Esther, the young woman that Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, Abihail, to go into the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. So it seems that this relationship is such that she trusts this man. You know, asking, what should I take? It seems like whatever the woman took, the women are allowed to take one item into the king. It seems like that was a, their... It's awful language. It was their payoff. They could have, you know, maybe it was expensive jewellery or expensive attire. Esther trusts Haggai and whatever he says to her, she does. She goes in and we're told that Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She's obviously clearly beautiful. In verse 17, she won the favour and approval of the king more than any other virgin. Esther wins. It's not a game she's won. She's won the competition of who's best with the king in bed. That's what's gone on here. She won the competition. The king wanted her back. He shocked the others. But he wanted her back. He wanted her to be his new queen. It's obviously sex is clearly the flavour of the day here, but it's more because he wanted to be his queen. There's something about Esther beyond her beauty and sex appeal. Something beautiful beyond that that the king could see with all his vanity. Something about Esther that he appoints her as his queen. And look, gives her a banquet, and the king gave a banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials, and proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So it seems that there's a new banquet. Remember when Vashti had hers? She defied the king. Esther is much more. What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. She seems like a much more easygoing, nothing like Sarah. I mean, did you see? Did you hear that? The tone of voice. <laughs> Esther is much more easygoing, laid back, it seems. And she's not making any demands. And the king's not making any demands. In fact, it seems like the king has learned his lesson. He's not demanding 
to show her off. Maybe she's too good for that. And she's one person he wants to keep completely private. So that's what's going on in chapter 2. The king's having a, look, please excuse me, a sex competition to choose his wife. Of all the beautiful girls in his kingdom. Of all the beautiful girls in his kingdom. Think of the Bible. It doesn't hide the warts. It tells you things as they are. Of all the beautiful girls, he chooses Esther by chance. She's made this remarkable impression on him. So that's the story. That's where Pippa's production leads us to. It's the bulk of chapter 2. What's it about? Why? Why is it in there? Because it's pretty tough reading. If you think it's tough listening to me, you try and say some of this stuff from here. It's not nice. Okay? Why is it there? What's it about? What does God want us to, to learn? Look, the first thing, this isn't the main story. The main story is about Esther and Mordecai saving the Jews from genocide. That's the story. And look, really, you could have done the whole thing in one sermon and just got to your main point 20 minutes into the sermon. But we're going to take a few weeks, okay? And so we're just building up to it. So we're picking up some of the peripheral points. And so there's a peripheral point in chapter 2 here. There's something going on. Look, here's some of the situation. Look, look we have here the abuse of power, don't we? Why does Xerxes do this? Because he can. Who's going to say no to him? It's abuse of power. We have the exploitation of women. Hundreds and hundreds of young women, many of them now that teenagers, confiscated from their families to be abused by this king. It's terrible. And yet they're not the main themes, don't think, of what's happening in chapter 2. The main theme in chapter 2 is Esther and Mordecai. They're the, they're the lead characters. You've just introduced them. And so whatever else is happening in chapter 2, the abuse and everything else, the main focus is Esther and her cousin Mordecai. There. So that's the big message of chapter 2, Esther and Mordecai. So what is the big message? That she's beautiful? No, that's not the big message, is it? The big message of, of Esther, chapter 2, the book, is Esther and Mordecai, and it's their circumstances. That's what the author, he's introducing the characters to us and introducing the characters to us, he's giving us the context of their lives, their backgrounds, how they happen to be in this play. Why are they in this play? And so here they are, look, we have an orphan girl. And so one of the things the author is, is doing is, is drawing our sympathies towards this young girl. She's an Israelite, she's living in exile, Okay, we have Mordecai, the older one, the mature one. Okay, He's obviously much older. We said before he hasn't married her. He's a Benjamite. That's going to be really important later. Bear that in mind. Okay, okay. His grandfather was carried into exile. That's why he's his great-grandfather. He's, what's he done to Esther? He's, when Esther's parents died, he adopted her. So he's taking care of her. He's a legal guardian. That's some of the detail. I, I, I need to walk, but I'm going to. Uh, I'm stuck by this camera unless somebody wants to move it. So look, I'm stuck here. I don't really need to go. I need, I need some space. Okay, well, I'll do my best of standing here. 
So look, what is going on? Well, Esther is walking into a sex competition to win the king's heart, to become the next queen. She's choked into the harem. There goes her kosher diet. And that's important to you. There goes her kosher diet. She's surrounded by women talking about nothing other than as much as Haggai is trying to protect her. And then she sleeps with someone who's not her husband. She sleeps with a guy. And marries him. A Gentile. Remember what Gentile Jews talked about? Gentile, Gentile dogs. It was forbidden in scripture. Not just the sex, the marrying. The whole thing is wrong. Can you see that? This isn't an example of what to do with your daughters, guys. And so, what's Mordecai doing? What's his relationship to Esther at this point? He's her legal guardian. There's no word of a fight. There's nothing in the text saying, and and Mordecai was in arms. You touch my girl and I'm going to... There's none of that, is there? In fact, he was probably... What do you think he got when Esther was selected? Big bucks. It's all wrong. And if you think I've been too hard on them, unlike, here, there's a quote coming here, unlike Daniel and his friends, this is a commentator, someone much wiser than me, unlike Daniel and his friends, Esther does not protest. What happened to Daniel when, when there was an edict? You shall not pray to any other God for 30 days. What did Daniel do? You know what he did? He went into his bedroom, He put the sheets over his head and went to sleep for 30 days. What did he do? He prayed nevertheless. Because I don't care. What about his three buddies? If you can say their names. Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you. What about them? What was the... Start again, Montague. Those false teeth back in. Okay. What was the edict then? Remember the edict? The statue? When the music plays? What does Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego do? On the pain of death. And what happens? They get... Yeah. And so you take that story also in exile. It was just a few years... Which way is it? Backwards and forwards, I forget now. It was a few years earlier. Or later. I can't think now. It's in my notes and I can't see it. Okay. So it's two similar circumstances... We overlap them, okay? How, how, does, how do Esther and Mordecai look compared to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Not good. Not good. And I think, I think that's what's going on here, friends. In introducing these two characters, the author wants you to know that he's not presenting to you two heroes of the faith for you to emulate. He's not presenting to you great warrior Daniel or Abednego. 
They become great heroes. Esther is, whose, whose name is on the front cover of this book? Esther. She is the heroine of this story. And in fact, if you read the story, you realize it's not just Esther who's the heroine. Who else is the big hero of this story? It's Mordecai. These are, these are the giants of this book. The heroes, the one everybody wants, going to want to autograph at the end. But at this junction in the story, at their introduction, the author wants you to know what? Yes. That they are, hey, hey, that they are real people. Hey, who here, honestly, come on, don't, don't give me any nonsense. Who here, when the king had an eagle saying you can't pray for 30 days, who here would have seriously done it? When they're pointing point a gun at you, and someone's standing there with a gun to your shoulder and says, if you bow down and pray to Jesus, I'm going to blow your head off. Who was seriously afraid? I don't think I would have done. I don't think I would have done. Seriously. If somebody said to me, says, we're going to chuck you into a furnace if you don't bow to Morrison, Scott. I just get down on my knee. I'm sorry, look. You want to know the truth about me? I'm not that special. I'm not Daniel. And if we're honest, neither any one of us in this room. And I think what the author is doing here is introducing two characters into his story who he wants the reader to know he, they're unlike Daniel, that these two are just like you and me. They're real. They're people that you can identify with. They're not wonderful. They're certainly not perfect. And here's, the, here's, here's my heading. The grace of God and his sovereign reign in the, in the lives of those in faith. The grace of God and his sovereign reign in the lives of those in faith. Hey, when we look at Esther, when we look at Mordecai, we're meant to see two people in whose faces we can see our reflection. If we do anything other than that, look, look, if we read, if we read Esther and Mordecai, chapter 2, and make out that wonderful, you'll be dishonest with the Bible. Seriously. If you read any comedy that says, oh, oh but poor Esther, you know, she was taken by force, what do you think happened to Daniel? No, it's not good enough. And poor Mordecai, what could he do? Well, he could have fought for his daughter, couldn't he? Sid, if someone wanted to take Lisa from you when she's 14 to go and sleep with her by force, what would you do? You would fight to the nest. Don't justify these guys, please. Rather, admit that they're just like us. Just like us. People who get it wrong sometimes. People who make mistakes. People who make poor decisions. People who fall short of God's high standard. People who do things that are less than good. People who sometimes seem never to learn. People whose lives are just so complex. 
people who've made a real mess of their lives. That's what the author wants us to know, that it could have been just as much you in that story as that girl. And if I was Mordecai, I would have probably, because I'm a coward, done the same. A commentator writes, the author of Esther is skillfully describing a morally ambiguous and complex situation because that is the way real life often is in this fallen world. Esther and Mordecai are real. In a film I watched well, it's been many years ago, I'm old enough to say it's been many years ago, okay? uh, Deep Impact, has anybody, anybody seen it? about the end of the world, and, and look, there's a scene in there where this is this veteran of the war, he's, he's an astronaut, they've got to go into space, they've got to dig, they've got to dig a hole in a, they've got to stop a meteor crashing into the earth, okay, it's been a while since I've seen it, and uh, there's a veteran fighter pilot, now an astronaut, and these young astronauts, and they've never been into space, he's done several missions, they've never been into space, but they've done all the training, you know, all the digital reenactment, the simulator and everything, and they're talking to this old-timer, and they're laughing. Oh, they're just sending him on the mission with us just for PR. You know, look at him, you know, he's a coffin dodger. Do you know that term? You know, you know why is he going on this mission? You know, and, he, and then he sticks up for himself. He goes, look, look, guys, I'm on this mission because I'm the only one here who's been into space. And they're like, hey, we've done all the simulations. He goes, hey, hey. You've just played video games, okay? I've been there. And the point here is, friends, is that when we're expecting to find in church a bunch of perfect people, when we're expecting God to use perfect people, we've just been watching video games. There aren't any perfect people in this room. There aren't any people who don't fall short of his standard. There aren't anybody here who's... This, I can guarantee, I know certainty, I know I have, and I'll be certain that you have, sinned, fallen short of God's standard several times already today. Already today. How many going to look at Ricky's necklace and I've fallen short? I want that! It's like that, isn't it? Okay, and so the hero of this book is God because he takes these fallen people and he shows patience, love and grace and forgiveness and wisdom and he perseveres and he gets somewhere with them. He makes something of their lives. Here's what a commentator says. Regardless of whether they always knew what was right choice was or whether they had the best motives, God was working through even their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill his perfect purposes. Often then Jesus, even the godless, other than Jesus, even the godless people in the Bible were flawed, often confused, sometimes outright disobedient. And we're not different to them. Yet our gracious God omnipotently works his perfect plan through them, through us, and most surprisingly, even through powerful political structures that sometimes operate in evil ways. Look at Abraham. He's a compulsive liar, father of the faith. Jacob, you wouldn't trust him. You couldn't trust that guy. Look what he became. Joseph, he couldn't keep his mouth shut, could he? 
we've just looked at, there's a guy we looked at in the book in Ruth. What's the lead character there? Boaz. Married a forbidden woman. There's no way he should have married Ruth. She was a Moabitess. So when you look at these characters, you realize God does that. He takes people that are less than Gideon. He's a coward. Moses, God used him as the father of the faith. What did he do? Sid, he killed a fella. And God appoints him as the great Moses. And as for David, not only adultery, but conspiracy and assassination. And what does God do with him? What does God call him? A man? What? Are you serious? God? You want that kind of guy in your? And so the point is, friend, I'm going to come to a close. Hey, some of you are new here, some of you are regular here. God doesn't care where you've been, what you've done, what you're like. He just cares that you're here. He died for your sin. He's going to take care of it. He welcomed you here, knowing what you're like, knowing what you'll be like tomorrow, knowing what you'll do tomorrow. He welcomes you. He's not expecting that you're going to meet his perfect standard. That is the standard of God. And God is not encouraging us to sin. But what he's telling us is that when we do fall short, like we will, like Esther, like Mordecai, like David, like Moses, like every one of the Old Testament and New Testament and the historical people of God, he doesn't despair. He doesn't give up on you. He doesn't write you off. He doesn't sack you. He doesn't put you on a heap pile. He doesn't relegate you. He takes you. He looks at your circumstances. He heals you. He forgives you. He restores you. He uses you. He makes something of your life. And some of you may yet go on to be the movers and shakers of Australia. Who knows? Esther became the heroine. Mordecai did too. Why not one of us? And so that's where we're going. That's the story. We don't always get it right. You won't always get it right. And if you think you're going to live a perfect life, get your head out there. (laughs) Whatever it is, really. You're going to fail God. You're going to let him down. None of us can meet his standard. We don't want to condone that, but it's the reality. And God wants you to know he'll never leave your side. He'll never leave your side. He won't give up on you. His plan won't take a detour. He'll fulfill his purposes for your life. He's going to stick with you. He's going to see through. And he's going to make something beautiful of your future. So come. You're not perfect. Come, you're welcome here. Don't hide. Come back. Here's the final word. It's it's Romans 8. Paul wants you to know this. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any other powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in 
Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. I say this often, I want to finish with this line. Go away knowing this. You're loved. You're loved. Amen. Amen.